I'm shit at it. Can't work for no one telling me what to do. I'm shit at it. Can't work for me son. I'm shit at it. Can't even work in a chipper. Chips, peas and gravy. I'm shit at it. It ain't fucking rocking science. Can't answer the phone. I'm shit at it. Can't make simple calculations. I'm shit at it. Can't even butter a cob right. I'm shit at it. How do you like your bacon doing? I'm shit at it. How do you like your haircut, sir? Like this. Got a job in it, Punch and Judy. Finger bobs, you're shit at it. I'm shit at it. I'm shit at it. Great. They say the band with most tattoos is the worst one But I could be covered head to toe in the fuckers And I'd still be fucking brilliant Fuck off Fuck you telling me what to think and what to adhere to I'm a king-size sheep thinker I love a big nudge over a fucking half stinker Mardi bastard Head full of chips No vision here Just a quick glimpse Whenever I want the piss Endo The king of corned beef land He rules his people And they laugh at the thick con man in that shit remake of Fargo. Only it's not a remake for me. It's everyday fucking life. I'm like a hitman on 20 Marble Menful. Like diamond lights with Oddle and Waddle. You don't need tattoos to be a footballer, mate. Just a shit haircut and a page free model. Hello, and you're listening to Inkstads, and I'm not Robin McConnell, whatever his name is. Uh, I'm a voice without a name. And today I'll be talking to Tim Hansley, the author of uh, Volley Gropis, Ticket Stub, Sir Alfred Number 3, and uh, many other short sayings that I hope we will be able to cover. Hello, Tim. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I, yeah, the listeners at home will not, hopefully not realize the amount of uh, technical stuff we did to arrive at this moment. Here. <laughs> yeah, I, I just spent an hour wrestling with everything uh, that is supposed to record things. Uh, so hopefully the listeners will not pick on the irritation in my voice. That is well, more of it than usual. Okay, so... Uh, 
I guess we should start with Sir Alfred, which um, just came out, uh, almost didn't make it, but in the end it did. So can you tell us briefly uh, about the making of that book and how it came to be and how it's now available through Fantagraphics? Yeah, well, uh, spent maybe five years drawing it and then uh, asked Alvin if he wanted to, to print it and he said yes and we worked on it for a couple months uh, back and forth, uh, just getting the files ready and uh, I think originally it was supposed to come out in November, he was supposed to print it for, um, was that the, uh, the Brooklyn Comics Art? Comics, right. they changed the name. Now it's CAB. That's what it's called. CAB. Now. Yeah, I know. I get the acronyms. I get them all mixed up. So, um, yeah. So, uh, but he was working on a bunch of things at the same time. And he, mm -hmm. uh, so, but yeah, he, uh, then, yeah, it was, just, it was printed. And then I, he sent me the comp, the comp copies. And then literally the next day I received an email saying that he had died. And so then everything became a matter of, uh, Right. Talking to his uh, father, who was, uh, because Alvin didn't have a will, like trying to, uh, his estate, trying to uh, figure out how to get the books out of his house and storage area and getting mm -hmm. them distributed and also reaching an agreement that was satisfactory to Alvin's father and stuff. So it took a while to do that. So, uh, but yeah, Fanagraphics uh, and, and John Porcelino both agreed to dis distribute the, the book. And now it's finally in storage. There are definitely times where I was like, I don't, <laughs> I was expecting a call saying like, you know, like it was on a plane and the plane, you know, was shot down or like, you know, or, or it was in a car, right. it was in a car, but the car swerved off the road and it went off a cliff. You know, I, you know, I just never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Well, that would have been a very Hansley-esque twist in the story. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah, the car crashed into a plane and whatnot. Oh, a uh, car crashed, yeah, into a plane. Yeah, that would have been even better. It, it went off a cliff and then it hit a plane or something. Yeah, that would have right. been right. Uh, the cliff with another plane. Uh, the plane has different meanings. But it right. is available now from Fantagraphics, and everyone should buy it now uh, immediately. And uh, I should note that it is kind of more than just a book. It comes in this uh, beautiful package with the coaster and the print. And it's all uh, only thousand copies, all numbered and signed, and really beautifully printed. Um, all of your books have uh, fantastic production quality and attention to design, and, and this is no exception. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, every time there are challenges, uh, you know, that there's so many ways that it can go wrong too. You know, uh, mm -hmm. so. I feel lucky that I've got things have gone okay. <laughs> so, uh, at least with this one, the challenge was that it was an oversized comic, and then the Alvin, mm -hmm. that Alvin wanted to print it. He didn't want to print it overseas, so mm -hmm. he wanted to print it locally, like a little, literally a printer that was in walking distance from where he lived. So, um, yeah, that's nineteen eighty four, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, that made that made some limitations in terms of the size, you know, like how big could it be and uh, how much was Did it? Did you want it to be even bigger? Uh, we originally talked about it being a little bigger, but I, mm -hmm. I think it's perfect the way it was. I think like right. the problem with it is like there's all these little four panel strips on the, about three quarters of the way through it. And like those have to be big enough to read. But 
But mm-hmm. if you make it too big, then the other stuff that's like eight panel pages, then it, then that starts to become too big. So it was like trying to split the difference. Right. I guess. Uh, you know, if it, if they didn't have those pages with the daily kind of strips on them, it could have been a little smaller, I think, like maybe mm-hmm. nine, 9 by 12 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, it is a startlingly archaic format. I, I definitely wanted to do a comic book, and it did, and that even that seemed like kind of a challenge, like, you know, right. trying, trying to, because everything is now geared towards towards being a graphic novel and being on Amazon and, you know, being in Barnes & Noble and stuff, and mm-hmm. And this is more like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy, actually, with the way it's in, being distributed. I just, you know, I, I found when I did Ticket Stub that I enjoyed it being more low-key. Like, it's less stressful for me, I guess. Right. I, I don't, like, because I don't feel like I would necessarily, I mean, my stuff has already, you know, never really sells as much as, you know, something that somebody... As it should. Uh, well, you know, I mean, just from experience from over the years, so many different things I've done seem to fall in like the maybe 500 to 1,500 range, something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to scale things down because it's not like I'm going to be like, okay, here, you know, here's my, you know, YA graphic novel or something right. like that, you know, so. No, please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> there's no shortage of that. It's, uh, you know, the, the entirety of her second output. So uh, I think this market is very well catered to. Um, The sort of stuff that you do is is not in abundance. Well, um, uh, what what I meant by production is not just the printing quality, which is there, obviously, but also the way you as the designer approach uh, whatever format you're using and really utilizing every available surface. Like on the spine of Wallagropius, you have all these stock hangies. And uh, Ticket Stub, uh, it has um, a hole in the bottom, which makes it look like a Ticket Stub. Right. <laughs> and, you know, even like the way you put the logo, so the Yam books on the cover of Ticket Stub I'm looking at right now, it's uh, shaped like a dance move and, you know, it goes around. Um, it's also... I think this is all really clever and it, it makes it um, impossible to imagine it as anything else. It can't be just... A bunch of PDFs or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, the Spider Wally Gropius was supposed to be stamped in addition to mm-hmm. uh, it was a silk screen, I guess, or uh, I forget uh, on the on the spine. And you see sometimes too, they actually additionally like stamp it uh, mm-hmm. to make it have an impression. But I think somehow that detail got lost. <laughs> so that was like one of the things where I was looking at. It's like, oh, I wish uh, you know. There was another thing like the headband, this thing called a headband, which is like right. this tiny thing that's like where the, all the paper meets at, at where it's bound on either mm-hmm. on either end. There's like this little tiny ribbon or there isn't one. And there was sort of like a back and forth about is there going to be a headband or not? You know, like these things that, you know, no one, no one, you know, in their right mind would be like, look at it and be like, well, it was pretty good, but there was no headband on it, you know, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so those details like are, uh, yeah, with Ticket Stub, it was more like we had, didn't, we're, we're going to make like a super lavish book, but it, that was the the, uh, the die, die cut thing, that was something we had to figure out too. Right. Well, I, I can't think of another book that has this design that also fits so beautifully with the actual material. And um, I think that's where this small press really comes in and... You know, Cesar Ira, the novelist, he he publishes most of his books, as far as I know, in his native language in um, very small presses. And uh, in some interview he said, well, uh, 
it's the reader's goal to find my books. Uh, it's not my duty to sell it to them. I really like that attitude, you know, that you have to work a little bit well, to find which author was good that? art. Which uh, Cesar Ayra. Actually, I may not be pronouncing his name oh, right. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, you know. He's published here by New Directions in this really tiny, tiny books. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that's definitely a, a, a good quote. But I mean, to me, it's like more of a pragmatism kind of thing, right? You know, right. Everyone, <laughs> yeah, everyone, you know, sometimes he. I, I got caught up in a little bit of that when I started when I was doing music where I was like I did one record and I each record that I did I started to add you know uh, musicians thinking like well if the arrangements are more complicated that means that it's better you know, <laughs> but, you know I thought well if there's eight people playing at the same time and even though their intonation is all over the place like you know uh, mm -hmm. so I don't know like necessarily like when you think about what your next step should be sometimes bigger isn't always better or it's just so easy to get confused about what you're supposed to do yeah. next you know right right yeah well i'm glad you brought up music because that was something i wanted to talk about mm. um and well you did already talk about it a good deal and the first interview with robin uh, which you should listen to listener oh yeah not there? me i don't want to listen <laughs> no 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 I'm, I'm talking to the listener yeah, um, yeah for some reason they're not replying which is rather rude uh, but also pleasing uh, so you talked about your background, and I, I don't want to go over that yet again. Uh, but I think there is, uh, I'm sure many people will agree, a very strongly defined musical quality about both your writing and your drawing. Uh, it feels like in your writing, everything is done in this kind of declarative statement. It's not so much a stream of text rather than um, a series of exclamations often. Right which reminds me of song structure. And in terms of drawing, um, everything has a, this quality of suspended, almost dance. Uh, the way you position your characters, they're, they're always in movement, and at the same time, they're kind of stuck with this intense static, almost kind of uh, stuck between paralysis and movement. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can see that. <laughs> um, it's a very unique visual look. It's usually it's just one way or another. Either it's a very dynamic style or something that's a little more static. I, but you have a very strange midpoint. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think probably because I stopped doing music that like the music's ended up being the subconscious thing that was coming through the drawings probably or or or, mm -hmm. the, or the language. So, you know, it's just because. It's sort of when you push something down and it kind of squeeze, you know, flies out the sides or something. It's a bit like that, I think. Um, uh, the 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 way that the characters are positioned, a lot of that was when I was looking at the a lot of the teenager comics like Archie and stuff. Like the way that they're drawn is very very much like that, where everything is. Mm -hmm. They're either they're either using photo reference, but you never see the photos, or like sometimes like. They had to crank the things out so so fast that you can see the same poses appear over and over again, and you know that they're just like, here's that that stock picture of Veronica with her her you know her her hand on her hip or something like that. They just over and over again. Once you look at it, you just start to see the the same poses over and over again, mm -hmm. where they start to become sort of absurd. Like you know, it's like a weird, uh, you right. know, like a language or something. Yeah. Yeah, the, that repetition, it becomes almost sinister when you yeah. pay intense attention to it. And I think that's something that you also exploit uh, quite a bit in your work. There's a lot of patterning and repetition 
Yeah. So certain things recur with a, a slightly sinister insistence, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I get I get a lot of that where people think like there's like this sinister or dark quality to to what I do, oh. like. Uh, yeah, but it's always like an undefined thing and it's always like I can never tell mm -hmm. whether that's supposed to be me or that's actually the person reading it <laughs> recognizes something in themselves that's dark and says like that's not me you know or something or, right, or you right. know I, I, don't, I, I don't it's hard to tell uh, yeah well uh, well that's that's always something that interests me this uh, kind of weird qualities uh, when they emerge on their own or when they're uh, forced by the author and in your work, they certainly don't feel forced at any point. They feel very natural. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, certain times you you have you know uh, an inclination to something you you want uh, a reader to see, but you know obviously sometimes you just uh, you make something and how people react to it is a total shock. You can't control that part of it, and that's what's good about it. I mean, you can you can barely control what you know the the making of it in some ways, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, but you have uh, not a great deal of exposition or explanation in your work. It's almost like you're putting together a lot of very beautiful, well-defined dots, but there are no lines between them, and it's up to us to uh, see something sinister in it or funny or both, which is what I see. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I, I I try to make what I do clear, but I, there are definitely things that I try to avoid, like... Uh, uh, with the Sir Alfred thing, you can think of so many different biographical comics, like the more staid they are, like the more like so-and-so was born in this year mm -hmm. and this happened. And it's like a dialogue, you know, caption right. or something and trying to dramatize events and change them. So it's just strictly dialogue or, 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 uh, that's kind of a challenge that I'm trying to do sometimes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I think, uh, biographical comics, well, I should really try not to express my opinion on that, but uh -oh. the, the <laughs> listener may deduce from my tone of voice what I think about most of them, with some notable exceptions, like uh, Pablo uh, by Clement. I um, can't remember his last name, but he had an interview on Instats recently, and uh, I think that book is fantastic. Uh, but right. uh, I think it is really curious that you took up a biography after all these books. It's not something most people would expect from you, but also it highlights um, just the strengths of your style and uh, how you can take anything and turn it into your own project. Like on the cover of Solar Alfred, first of all, it has the word glean, which is unusual for a comic book <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> let alone on a cover. Um, but so it says... Um, Apocryphal anecdotes bibliographically gleaned. So that's something I want to ask. How much of it is in fact bibliographically gleaned and how much of it is your own? Uh, I would say most of it is. I mean, like sometimes it'll be an anecdote where like I'll read in, in a biography and it'll say uh, Alfred Hitchcock never looked through the viewfinder when mm -hmm. he was directing. And so like there's a strip in there where he, he tells somebody that, but I invented this thing right. where uh, it, he he he's asked to do it and he thinks of all the other directors who have eye patches which are uh you know uh, i forget it's like nicholas ray and uh, andre de Toth. these are all you know actual people famous directors with eye patches so he thinks of all them and that's why he decides not to look in the camera that is probably not true but <laughs> i mean it's really more because he's like 
from the silent film era and right. you know like it would be like you didn't have you was like you know which lens are we using like well there's one you know, <laughs> I don't right, know right, right. so uh, yeah. yeah, well, I think that was also a recurring motive in your work, kind of taking things a little too far or a little further than um, you would normally expect. Um, that reminds me in Bolly Grop is uh, in the um, high school scene uh, when you have, uh, I'm trying to find it, the janitor, right? And he says, well, kids these days, blah, blah. Uh, and then he, he talks about synthesizing oxygen uh, with an atom right. smasher. <laughs> right. um, sort of... I can see how this is taken more than a few extra steps into this direction. Like a, a different cartoonist might have written something like, well, kids in our days, we had to walk to school. But then you take more than a few further on. So it's the same with the viewfinder. You know? Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, that was definitely the case in, in that, where it's like, uh, I think there's like a Monty Python sketch where it's where, mm -hmm. where like a bunch of old men and they're complaining about Oh, oh yeah, I, the Yorkshire man. To, maybe you know specifically, yeah. Yeah, so the, the four Yorkshire men. Um, it gets progressively surreal. Right, yeah. I mean, it's just a general humor thing, too. But, yeah, I think also when I had a job of captioning and I was watching TV shows and movies all day, like, there's, like, this one book, uh, you know, old-fashioned book called The 36 Dramatic Situations or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like, a, it's like how to write. And it's like saying everything can be boiled down to these 36 things. Mm -hmm. And, like, when I would do captioning, it seemed I could see the logic of that. But the 36 things weren't, like, what were in that book. But it's just always, like, you know, someone walks into a room and they say, are you okay? You know, like that. Like, it's just every TV show I've ever worked on, that happens. You know, that, that kind of stuff. So... Uh, yeah, well, the, the, in your job as a club captioner, you had to watch an extraordinary amount of crap, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your relationship with that? Do you have any kind of affection for uh, really lowbrow stuff? Uh, for, for me, like, highbrow, lowbrow, it's kind of a long answer, maybe, because it's like... Um, for me, I was always interested in literature and the fine arts and all this stuff. But and in my family, I grew up in a situation where, like, my my dad was a piano player for Neil Diamond, which mm -hmm. like my my friends were never impressed with, but my friends' parents <laughs> were always impressed with. So it's kind of like it's kind of like as a teenager, that's not maybe the first thing you would think of as being cool. So I would have always had to reconcile like all of my friends are into like you know, 70s British punk or something. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, yeah, you know, I, my dad was just in this jazz singer movie, you know, or something. It's just like, uh, you know, uh, or, and then also like having a disabled sister have like kind of like well, arguably brain damage and her approach to language mm -hmm. sort of like, but those two things like always made me look at high culture a little bit like more suspiciously because I would always be going to places where, you know, like uh, convalescent hospitals where people did nothing but watch these terrible TV shows mm -hmm. and like, you know, like people would be trying to help them and get, get engaged in other things. But it was just, uh, but yeah, it's kind of a long answer. But it's like, uh, I think, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, there's other people maybe just dis distinguish between them maybe more than, than I might, I guess. Yeah, well, I think that really does come through your work and your your attitude towards... Um, I think, well, there is a, always a growing resurgence in 
a so-called outsider art and things that are a little fringy. Um, and often they tend to look a little patronizing, and there's none of that in your work. It seems to be a very genuine and keen interest. And I'm glad you brought up your sister, because um, I did want to ask about uh, this relationship, okay. but also um, I'm a little wary. I hope it's not too personal or anything like that. But I have read in an interview that uh, this relationship was an influence on your approach to language. So would you be comfortable to talk about that at all? I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you think uh, stuck with you? And uh, uh, this, this kind of wordplay that you use, it seems to me not just intellectual in its origin, but also emotional. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> uh, again, like, uh, you know, uh, but we never had like a good diagnosis of my, my sister, but she was always having problems and I grew up with her and I didn't really, mm -hmm. uh, you know, have a lot of a grasp on it, but you know, her, she's pretty, she is high functioning enough to know the injustice of her situation where a lot of times mm -hmm. she would eventually end up be living in convalescent hospitals and, and be going to these day programs, uh, that were like, uh, well, she had some job where she was like putting stickers on videotapes all day and stuff and you know just couldn't um but she would say things there's a there's this chain called the ampm mini mart mm -hmm. here it's uh, ampm like morning and night she would call it amfm you know they're like little things like that mm -hmm. or she would call uh there was somebody at one of the convalescent homes called an ombudsman who is an advocate of, of sorts for some of the clients there, and she would always call him the Bunsman. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, so I just kind of grew up, like, you know, having that kind of uh, interaction, having mm -hmm. conversations and stuff, or, or definitely later on in life just going to visit her at these places where I'd be having conversations with people who are definitely... Uh, mentally ill <laughs> and, right. and just way off on a tangent where you could tell it was like relevant to what you were when you were interacting with them but it it was like uh if you looked at it objectively uh, in a logical way you'd just totally be lost you know like what's going on right. <laughs> well so. it, it's uh, our our minds they have a um, somewhat irritating for an artist a tendency to make sense of things and it's always confusing and fascinating to us when we meet someone who seems to bypass it in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, thinking about like the, the idea of being slightly brain damaged, like uh, you know, uh, it made me read read like old books about the you know histories of, of mental retardation and mm -hmm. whatever, where they would there was like this one doctor who would define people as being feeble minded, or or either feeble minded or you're a moron or you're an idiot. You know, right. like, which, you know, in today's world, you might, or, or the guy who who invented the lobotomy, like he had, this, yes. he, he had a car called the lobotomobile. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they would be, they would be just a little bit too, um, too interested in, in what they were doing to the point where they were like trying to forcibly sterilize people or give people lobotomies and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and back then too, it could be just somebody Maybe it might be a, a woman who is slightly promiscuous all of a sudden would be feeble-minded instead of like, you know, and, and the IQ testing was all weird and everything, but that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a whole other topic. But right. um, uh, so the whole, I was, whenever I was in a situation where I was in like, 
going to school and learning stuff, that would always be in the back of my mind. And it was like a combination of feeling like I, I had that kind of like taint or something where I, I, I wasn't quite good enough to understand what was going on. And then on the other side of it, I would be feeling like, like this isn't all there is, you know? Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, well, and it is also frightening to realize just how recent um, some of these things are that you mentioned. Because um, when you read about it, then it seems like some kind of witch trials, but actually that was just some decades ago at most. Right, and it's not, you know, like uh, kind of xenophobia we're seeing, like kind of political type stuff going right. on now is like kind of fits into that a little bit too. It's all pretty scary, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I first uh, learned of Donald Trump through your comic uh, because it had the sound effect, Trump. Right. And, um, well, okay, I, I should mention that I am uh, incredibly dedicated to uh, not keeping in touch with the world. So right. uh, um, I learned about ISIS about three months ago from one of my students. <laughs> I thought it's a band and then a god and whatever. Well, apparently it's a terrible terrorist group and I just didn't know about it. Well, most people, <laughs> well, yeah, most people know it as like a 70s uh, Saturday morning show for kids. It was this, right. uh, the, a woman who had a, kind of like uh, Captain Marvel said Shazam, she would say, oh, mighty ISIS. Yeah, and yeah. She, what yeah. if it's the same group of people? I imagine that. Like anyway. an early, indo <laughs> early indoctrination of some kind? Yeah, I, I mean... Uh, well, tastes change, you know, and then maybe they took up some terrorism. <laughs> Things happen. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> in a lot of strange ways, uh, the current political uh, thing that is uh, impossible to ignore, even for me, as hard as I am trying, is almost... Um, present in some of Gropius, and it's uh, really fascinating to reread it now, which I urge everyone to do. Uh, you know, I, I read the thing about uh, Trump's wife in The New Yorker, and in it she said that her interests are reading magazines and Pilates, which seems so uh, kind of howlingly anonymous that it almost becomes uh, kind of sinister in the same way. Like, it's it's unbelievably anonymous to the extent like if someone wrote this about a character in some kind of creative workshop, people would say, well, no one would say that. That's not natural. They would say the actual magazine, like a title of a magazine. Yeah, exactly. They would say, right? well, I love Vogue or Cosmopolitan or something. They wouldn't just say, I like reading magazines, any magazines, like... Uh, like uh, when I'm at the dentist's office or something like that. I right, like it doesn't matter. It's just as long as it's in a magazine form. It could be Holocaust Denials Weekly. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, right, well, what you're saying is interesting, like, because I was, like, you know that comic strip, The Little King? Uh, by um, Otto, Otto Soglo? Or right, I guess right, right. Yep. Mm -hmm. I was looking at that, like, you try to, try to date try to date like looking looking at a particular strip like when it was drawn mm -hmm. you know like okay this was done during world war ii and you're like there's one part where there's like there's a little king and then there's like maybe a little dictator or something there's like one thing where you think like okay that's a reference to the what's going on at the time but it's kind of like I, that's something yeah some people can do art that's kind of timeless and then mm -hmm. you know and then you wonder how how much you need to be engaged with what's going on and have that appear in your work i mean in, in terms of wally gropius it was more like during that time like 2010 that was like the stock market like you know the, yeah. the housing the housing crisis and all that stuff and that that was all going on and i was out of work and and so 
it just seemed like really silly for me to, to be imagining uh, doing the working on a millionaire type character. Uh, Donald Trump, I mean, from way back, he was considered uh, somebody who was, uh, you know, just a kind of just a bigot. I mean, you know, uh, so I, I don't know. <laughs> it's very now hard, he's very just weird. the bigot. A bigot um, and, and a potential presidential nominee. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, um, I think he's a nominee, isn't he? Um, I don't really know. Someone told me. I sometimes look in the booths with the newspapers, but they have the advertisement that cuts off half of the front page. <laughs> and so, like, I can only get the headline that's on, or I get half of the headline. Mm-hmm. And I try to try to figure out what's going on based on that, you know, and and whatever the size of the font is, you know, if it's really big, then that's going to be important. So, Right, right. Yeah, well, that, that brings me to something I also wanted to ask about uh, found text and... Um... The idea of working with someone else's material, so uh, obviously it's a huge part of Sir Alfred, uh, so taking um, actual events. Well, again, everything that is on paper is a fiction, so taking accounts of Sir Alfred's life and uh, using your own treatment, uh, and I think more notably in terms of found text, what you did in Kramer 7 uh, is one of my favorite things ever done in comics. Oh, it's, just, it's just so batshit insane and fascinating, <laughs> especially when you know that it's a real letter and you you start imagining kind of what's between the line, the life of that man and whatnot. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> I don't know what to say about it, but, uh, you know, in terms of... Uh, I, I guess I have like there are definitely a lot of cartoonists that have done like biographical strips where they take like an anecdote and and make it into a strip and I I guess tried to keep coming at it you know mm-hmm. to, from different angles any any angle I could think of just to try to keep it going mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah that that other one the one for Kramer's that was really I thought about that one for a long time. It was hard to figure out exactly how to draw it. And the more I thought about the narration, I just felt kind of sorry for him, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, well, yeah. I, and that's, I think, also with a lot of your other work, I hope people are not kind of seeing it as something very cynical. Um, you know, because it does have a certain uh, dryness to it, uh, which... Um, you know, may lead people to think that you are just cruelly mocking all this stuff, but I don't think you are. <laughs> I think well, there's very little of this kind of vulgar satire. Well, thanks. Uh, I mean, uh, with the with Sir Alfred stuff is like you know, I, I totally grew up with my dad telling me a million stories about. He was always working on really famous things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and telling me stories about them. You know, like he would say. Uh, I guess he he worked on this, uh, you know, the producer, Phil Spector. My my dad Mm -hmm. worked on a a recording session for John Lennon that Phil Spector was producing. And he he would tell me stories about that. Like, you know, Phil Spector would arrive at the session and he would be wearing a lab coat. And Mm -hmm. one one hand, he had a revolver. And the other hand, he would have a bottle of, you know, some alcohol of some kind. He would say, the doctor's ready to operate. And... um, (laughs) The funniest story about that was my dad said that it's like the wall of sound. So they have like live musicians mm-hmm. and they'll have like three piano players and like six acoustic guitar players. And yeah. my dad said they intentionally played a wrong note just because he wanted to hear if it would be audible. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and apparently it wasn't, I guess. He's so I always thought that was pretty cool. My dad played, you know, just intentionally played a wrong note in this record. But um, 
he hmm. he ended up leaving that just because of the guns, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's always um, saying stuff like that. So this is the like the Sir Alfred stuff is 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 is, is, is as much me processing all that stuff as well as just some old books and stuff, I guess. Right. Well, I can see there's a certain um, attention to detail that takes over the overarching uh, narrative. It's not like you're trying to make a point, but more that you're uh, focused on the detail and you're trying to exhaust uh, it to the very end and get as much of it as possible. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> and also, you have a, a rather archaic, I guess, not, not well, I shouldn't say that. I say archaic probably in terms of overall approach, but you do take it to a different place. Uh, but this sentence is really going too long, and I kind of forgot how it started, so I'll start again. Uh, <laughs> it looks like you have a, like a certain adherence to punchlines, which is really, you don't see you know, past Tomine and company. People kind of stray away from just having this final shot in a comic strip where everyone falls over, but you have that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like, uh, you're, I feel like it's, well, I mean, with this, it's like, uh, you know, uh, trying to, uh, the format of, of having a one-page gag or a four-panel strip, a lot of times there are those uh, type of, it's supposed to be anyway, or whatever. Sometimes mm -hmm. I just, you know, it, I, I'd be working on a thing like, it's it's not that funny, and then I'd be just drawing everyone falling over thinking it was really <laughs> funny. But, uh, but again, when it repeats over and over again, it becomes like a, some kind of spasmodic reaction that chains through everyone present. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's like they have an affliction. Sometimes like, it was harder, like... So, some of the challenge of it was trying to take an anecdote, you know, trying to make it into something that was... If if I could err on the side of of it being less biographical and being more like something you'd see in a classic comic strip, I would try to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. But, like, uh, the... Yeah, some of the punchlines. I mean, I tried to, I tried to not do a lot of the anecdotes that were more like. I tried not to go for anything that's too obvious, I guess. But mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, the punchlines uh, that you use, they they don't work like normal jokes. It's not a feed line punchline bang. Uh, it's uh, it's sometimes uh, extremely subdued or just completely turns around and. Um, makes you face the other way and wonder what the hell is going on. <laughs> right. Or sometimes That's... it's kind of overtly obvious in a way that is also unexpected. Uh, there is one strip where uh, this actress is asking Hitchcock to slap her, and so he does. The, that's the punchline, right? <laughs> yeah, and you can expect that he would maybe make a sound of it or just this anything but other than think, complying with the request. Yeah, I think like when I started, like I had the idea of like when I was doing those four panel strips, which was what I started doing, it's like I think I first like reacted to the idea of, of, of him being a sir and him being knighted by the government. So I kept going by trying to find all these anecdotes where he, he, he didn't seem like a knight, you know? <laughs> like right. was, there's no chivalry, obviously, in that gesture. Obviously, it's like... Uh, you could argue that it was, uh, you know, uh, trying to elicit a performance of somebody, you know, crying or being frightened or whatever. Mm -hmm. but, but definitely, like, the more I worked on it, the less I wanted to 
sort of keep coming at that from that angle. I mean, I got over the fact that he was knighted by the government. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, you know, I mean, you know, but at first I was like, I, I was kind of going for the, the anecdotes that were kind of didn't show him in the best light. And then, you know, it's good to have a, a subject where you're, where you feel all kinds of ways about it. So, you know, over the course of a long period of time, if you're feeling a different way, it'll be okay. Like, cause there's definitely, times where you'd read through the Alfred Hitchcock stuff and think like, this guy's a blowhard. Like, you know, he's always talking about suspense and, you know, the difference mm -hmm. between surprise and su suspense or whatever. He had this anecdote that he always tr was repeating, you know, that I just like, I don't, I don't want to draw that line, you know, so, but. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it is also fascinating that you took someone so famous and so widely uh, known and written about rather than an obscure figure. Uh, I think it's more of a challenge to illuminate something, uh, like what you just mentioned about a, a public figure of such great importance. And also, yeah. I think it, you know, it takes a lot of bravery uh, to do something like the, the spread in the middle, uh, which I will attempt to describe. Uh, it's a beautifully drawn scene uh, in the middle of the page, uh, in the middle of the entire book. Instead of making some grand statement that will unify everything together, you have Hitchhog making uh, about uh, six or seven puns and everyone is groaning. Right. <laughs> I think it takes a lot of bravery to dedicate the central spread to just puns. Right, I mean, you know, to be, to be honest, a lot of times you're, you think, okay, i got to do something that's 44 pages. Well, I'll, I'll definitely have a double-page spread in there because that'll mm -hmm. take, care, take care of two pages. But it's not like, it's never like, oh, that's, that's easy because to me it's always like, uh, you know, surface area what it, it doesn't matter whether it's you know four panels or t if it's just one big picture it still takes the same amount of time to draw but right of course uh, but uh i knew that i knew like if i had that many pages i could probably get away with a center page spread and i could probably get away with a full page you know drawing and i knew that i had the, the dailies that were, were pretty dense so i you know mm -hmm. sometimes with the pacing of it you know you want to I wanted to make sure that's kind of why I kept working on it too, because I felt like, Oh, this is too short. Like if somebody, you know, it's gotta, it's gotta keep coming out over and over again until you just be like, well, you know, I, I think it's more like you want to, uh, you want to read it. Uh, it's that old anecdote. You don't want to have somebody who reads it. You don't want to have a million people read it once. You want to have yeah. one person read it a million times. Right. So, well, here, yeah. here, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> listener, did you hear that? Uh, for $25, you get uh, several <laughs> books in one because uh, you read it several times. Uh, well, you know, that is something that, that is brought up in your reviews and actually in mine. People always go on, oh, dear, you have to read it twice to understand. To me, that seems like good value. You know, if you spend $20 on a book or something, you don't want to just know how it ends and then give it to your niece or a nephew. Um, Right, right, I agree. <laughs> you know, in the book of sad, like a good reader is a re-reader. So the first reading is uh, is really just getting used to the material. And I think it is uh, the reader's duty to read things twice and to really read into them. But maybe I'm getting carried away. <laughs> Как бы серебряной рыцей, за жопу, 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 за ж
mentioned uh, that you studied literature and um, in our private correspondence you said that you don't really keep up with it too much these days yeah <laughs> do you want to talk about your literary influences and um, general relationship with that oh well i mean i studied uh, i was an english major i started as an art major but then i switched to english because i like the idea of being able to read books and you you know, it was more, you could just read them and take a test on them and it was what you thought of them. Whereas like, uh, maybe if you're in history, then it'd be, be less about interpreting right. or something like that, but just remembering, you know, that's when the Magna Carta was or whatever. But, um, uh, I think, uh, sometimes I feel guilty and then I, I go back and read something that would have been something I read in college, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, recently as i do you know who kate tempest is at all or uh yeah the hip-hop poet yeah yeah i was reading i went to see her the other night at the at the downtown library or whatever i guess she has a novel that uh -huh. just came out so i was kind of curious about that mm -hmm. um but uh i don't well, read a lot of that, that's as current as it gets <laughs> oh Okay. Uh, well, well, I mean, but I, you know, most of the time I go go to the library and I'll get. I read more nonfiction than fiction these days. I guess mm. uh, I don't know, but I couldn't really explain why that is. I mean, obviously, when I was working on this book, I was reading all kinds of the just non nonfiction film books and stuff. But mm -hmm. um, you know. well, that is something I hear a lot in interviews with uh, authors. Uh, I suppose in your stage of artistic endeavors when after a few books so to speak they kind of stop reading fiction and they focus more on non-fiction uh, and uh, huh. that that makes some sense to me uh, I'm I'm myself not quite there so I don't really relate to it but I understand uh, why you would do that but we also well, talked a little bit about Robert Coover and uh, he has a book about movies which I thought was uh, a little bit similar in that he takes a very uh, elliptical view and he, he doesn't really uh, go into satire or anything like that so he would have a story uh, 
uh, that cast Charlie Chaplin in a uh, rather demented and dark fantasy where everything just falls flat and it's called Charlie in the House of Rue. And then he has uh-huh. a fantastic uh, sex thing. I don't know how to call it. I think it's between the scenes of Casablanca, which I haven't seen, so I can't say much about it, but he imagines a lot of really sordid sex uh, with fantastically funny phrases like um, her muscular saliva. <laughs> you know? I, I definitely have read uh, some anecdotes about the making of Casablanca that might actually fit into that, but I can't remember <laughs> them too well. But um, yeah, no, I, I did read that in college. I mean, a, a lot of some of the books that I would see that you had read, I'd be like, yeah, I remember reading that. <laughs> I mean, I, I was studying like English literature, but that we weren't studying those books like like maybe like metafiction or or, mm-hmm. or like the Eulipo kind of books that were mm-hmm. not. It was more like you know William Dean Howells, the the rise of Silas Lapham or something. Like that. <laughs> that was what I remember. It's like not, you know. Uh, very stodgy, I guess, or yeah. whatever. And well, I was, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Oh well, you know. So I would be reading. I was definitely interested in the more that in the kind of like a playful and kind of compressed uh, language. Uh, mm-hmm. Interested in a lot of books like that, and then I kind of got more into like like naturalism, which is like kind of mm. opposite of that. And then I kind of <laughs> naturalism became nonfiction or something. I, I don't know. Right. But, um, but well, yeah, that's a fascinating progression. <laughs> uh, in naturalism, what uh, what names would you single out? Oh, you know, it'd be like you know Theodore Dreiser, like the mm-hmm. you know, this sister Carrie or something like that, or mm-hmm. or uh, the um, even uh, well, well, John Barth who is like metafictional. He did the the Sotweed yeah. Factor or whatever. That's not naturalistic, but it it's like one of those kind of like big groany books or whatever that has a lot of like yeah. instru- intentionally well, well, written it, in the old-fashioned style and stuff right and right well kind of like mason and dixon and whatnot um right yeah but i, I suppose i'm not sure about the dates and uh, i i don't think i was alive back then but when you were growing up i imagine all this american uh, fabulous metafictional tradition was just beginning to appear like donald barsomi would be published in new yorker to great dismay of most of the readers and you would have um, lost in the found house which i think nowadays no one really reads or I read that. Yeah, I remember that one well. That was a good one. It was like, uh, but that was for me, maybe it was like that had ended up in a university library by the time I got there rather than it had just been written. You know, it was Mm, kind of more like, it was kind of like uh, maybe late 80s, early 90s. So it was already part of uh, tradition, so to speak. Well, it wasn't well, tradition. At early least it, tradition. It wasn't tradition in the sense that they were teaching it at my my university yet, or mm-hmm. maybe there there were probably definitely teachers teaching it there or whatever. But I maybe I just didn't have them. Like you know, there was there was one guy who was like the Hemingway guy, where he kind of even looked like Hemingway, and he wanted people to write like Hemingway. It was kind of like a bad joke, but like uh, he he was like a writing teacher that I had. Um, uh, oh boy, you know. But yeah, no, that I would be spending all my time in the library walking mm-hmm. around looking at books, and those were the ones that I was coming across. Mm-hmm. And it definitely made me feel good, like, you know, like, you also, you'd be studying something and be like, well, I'm actually reading this, and this is more interesting to me. You get have that kind of oppositional 
mm-hmm. feel to to it or whatever. But it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, again, I don't want to uh, impose my judgment on your work, but it does feel like you have uh, retained that playful aspect from uh, these kind of writers. And I think Ulipo, uh, you mentioned. Um, this, this kind of idea that they wanted to stray away from the literature of grandiose statements and have fun with it. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, writing has been such a struggle for me that, like, you know, mm. uh, I've definitely done things where I've tried to be like, I'm really expressing myself, and then other times where I'd be like, I'm kind of hiding behind this, and then, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or because I have so many, like, kind of emotionally charged things in my life that comes through or not but even if i'm you know making something that has like this kind of like supposedly impartial structure that's playful or whatever you know Mm -hmm. just sometimes the things that are very painful end up there anyway not that that's my intention you know or it is yeah well well, that seems to me the purest form of self-expression the one that doesn't rely on self-expression you know perhaps uh uh, avoid or the one the novel without the e is right. kind of uh, ostensibly uh, this very complicated uh, exercise, but then you know that his parents vanished uh, through the Holocaust and whatnot, and it it takes on a whole different meaning if you really read into it rather than oh, take it on surface level. You know, I never read that, but but hearing that detail mm. of it, the the idea that he would just omit an entire letter from a novel totally makes <laughs> sense. Then that's like just it's just a, like a fact of his life in a way. It's like mm-hmm. how, how do you write? You know, something where where like part of the literature is missing. How do you write when your parents? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, for that's... him, uh, Olipo really was a way of dealing with a lot of emotional issues. Uh, for him making this incredible complications to his own uh, process was the way of dealing with life. It was very emotional. Um, and I think that that partly explains the very cold, detached tone that you sometimes see in um, even Life of Yours' manual, that all the warmth and humanity is there. It's just very well hidden between the lines because he doesn't want to be uh, sentimental about it. He doesn't want to be a, a slam poet or something. Uh, right, right. Uh, or, uh, especially as was the fashion in that time. Uh, I think they were all protesting against it with their work. Uh, but um, that kind of brings me to Ticket Stub. And again, one of the last books that were published by Perec, uh, definitely posthumously. I, uh, I think it was only recently translated, uh, actually, by one of my friends um, in English. It's called... Um, I can't remember something like the dark shop, but and they retained the the French uh, title, and it's um, his dream journal. Um, but oh, wow. it's called something like the nocturnal autobiography of George Perec, um, and it is that. So there are no events of his real life. You don't really learn any facts at all, but you do get a picture of the man from the stuff that he sees. And of course, as Borges says, we don't really see dreams. We can only kind of remember them, and by remembering, we, we write them again. So it is an act, an act of um, kind of autofiction, what is now called. And with Ticket Stub, you know, you were going to this um, uh, closed captioning job, which I imagine to young people today will sound really strange. Uh, <laughs> and you had a lot of time, in your, well, a, some amount of time in your hands. Uh, and then you would write... Um, his caption, your own captions uh, to the movies, which would be anything but accurate. Uh, and I wonder if you can tell us um, how this happened and what was your writing process for this book? 
Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of the people that I worked with were all aspiring screenwriters, and you'd think like, well, they're typing just the captions. It's like, well, I, then I just switch over and make my own words or something. But I mean, it was really just boredom. I think you know, it, it's just the standard, uh, you know, frustrate job frustration. But but it it was also you know a lot of people like you know do life drawing or you know go outside and draw trees and stuff. But I was I would just. At a certain point, I was like, I was able to freeze frame these images in in mm -hmm. whatever I was working on. I was like, well, why don't I just draw that, you know? And then uh, it just kind of went from there. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it made the job, you know, a lot easier to bear because I was, you know, it was, it was definitely all of a sudden it became important, you know? Right. Whereas before I just, you know, like, oh, God, you know, and I just don't want to watch Pokemon again, you know? Just like, <laughs> I was I watched, like, maybe... I don't know, like hundreds and hundreds of episodes of Pokemon over the years, and um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I understand, but but what you're writing is not a kind of it's not what you would imagine to be a frustrated reaction. It's not satirical as such. Well, it's not obviously satirical at the very least. Um, and I think what what you're doing with syntax is uh, very unusual here. Oh, actually, I was wondering, like, when you're talking about wordplay, I was wondering, like, when uh, is is the Russian language? I tried to read a bit a bit about the Russian language and it was saying like that it's more like uh, modular in the prefixes and suffixes mm -hmm. or something. Right. So does that does that give you like? Do you think that affects the wordplay that you do and stuff, or when you read something that has wordplay that you recognize it more or? Yeah, you know, I have been thinking about it like a great deal because uh, I, I started speaking English pretty late. Uh, I came here in 2008 and I could barely speak. Uh, I think uh, my first oh, girlfriend wow. like was really amused by the fact that I didn't know the difference between arms and uh, hands. <laughs> <laughs> and she would sort of... Uh, Same difference. Yeah. Show, me, show me off to her friends and be like, hey, guess what? Roman doesn't know what an avocado is. And so I would be hurt, sort of funny, foreign little man. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess, you know, I learned most of my English through reading books in the library and uh, very little of it from talking to people, uh, partly because I didn't really enjoy the experience and partly because didn't anyone didn't really, I mean, no one, uh, I did attempt to make friends, but uh, very half-heartedly. <laughs> Well, it's amazing but, to me that you that you you say you began learning that was that's not so long ago. That's incredible. Well, I had <laughs> rudimentary English, but that was very technical and dry. It certainly didn't have any wordplay. But if you read some correspondence of say Nabokov and um, Edmund Wilson, you know Wilson admonishes him for wordplay, and he says it is not done here. You have a propensity for puns, and uh, I think. In Russian, what you do, you do have a great deal of uh, variety and whatnot, but it's also a little more exact, I would say. There is always a word that just about nails it, and I like that vagueness in English. And English definitely is better disposed to puns. And um, also, I think there is a snobbishness here, which I really don't understand, because I am foreign. You know, To me, that's fascinating, because one word can mean two things. How great is that? Uh, but people tend to grow, and then I think there's a kind of uh, really irritating snobbishness about it. Uh, well, you know, especially the final bit of Ticket Stub, where it's uh, almost like a story. 
That's like, yeah, that's where it actually started to really come together. And by the time I got mm-hmm. through that, I was like, you know, I think this has kind of exhausted itself. As you know, uh, I couldn't keep going with it. And by that time, the job was kind of falling apart anyway. So, mm-hmm. but uh, at that point, yeah, I mean, but that seems first, like the culmination of the whole project. Uh, yeah, yeah, it felt like that. It was like kind of like uh, instead of you know, instead of doing each each page representing a day of you know per, that what i worked on that day all of a sudden i had these panels and then i might do a drawing i would skip around and combine things and sometimes mm-hmm. uh i think it also let you know just it led on to what i did after after that but but um i think yeah i was once i once i had finished that i i, I kind of thought like Okay, <laughs> but I never, I never was able to put it all together into a book until I, until mm-hmm. Re, until it was in the the comics journal, and I got an email from Rena, and she said, uh, you know, if, you know, no one, <laughs> she she offered to publish it, and and I we just moved, and I found all the the Xeroxes, the Xerox masters I had of the thing, and so I was able to put it together. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad, I'm really glad she did, because I think this is one of my favorite things of yours, if not the favorite. Oh, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> most people are like you know. I feel like most people like the other stuff better because the artwork is more clean and and more accessible. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, for okay, here's a random page, and then the text here says, "When I grow up, this montage of airs and feet stepping through tires will out." <laughs> and then uh, there's a, a couple of dudes in a car. I don't know what movie this is, and they're catcalling. I imagine. But they have a rather curious choice of word. They say, got a face for tonsil hockey? Yo, it's phone finger <laughs> night. Right. Uh, <laughs> Those are kind of like, uh, yeah, like construction workers who are heckling women, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, where they're saying tonsil hockey is when you're kissing somebody, right? Uh, oh, is that uh, an actual thing? Yeah, it's a slang for, <laughs> for kissing, this tonsil That's hockey. That's fascinating. And uh, foam finger is like those things you get at a, at a baseball stadium. Right, right. But I guess the idea being that you're fingering somebody, uh, right. not fingering in a crime sense, but fingering in the sense of uh, uh, sexual. Uh, uh, yes, um, I, so, I understand. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> I didn't need to go into detail well, about that. Okay. A lot of it, uh, I almost kind of hesitate to ask how you write this because, um, you know, it feels like you have a nice, cute dog that loves you, and then you take a knife and tear it apart to figure out <laughs> why it loves you. You, know? you, you kind of, I feel like maybe it should be left unexplained. <laughs> But uh, it is also at the same time really curious to understand the process and how you write. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'll have something like really kind of. Well, you're talking about stepping through tires or whatever. Like mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, like in a in a movie, there'll be like some training sequence where they'll show somebody training to do something, and they'll show them doing the thing like you do when you join the army, where you have to step through these tires. Right. So. So he's saying, like, I mean, I don't remember that specific page, but it might be something about where he's saying, like, uh, he's he's referring to that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, right. So it sounds like you're removing layers of context at the end. It becomes a little more pure in a poetic sense. Or it might be something that's like almost like a, almost like translating it. Like if mm-hmm. you if you if you knew like you could just write it in a simple way, and then you could kind of scramble it to try to. And a lot of times I was trying to do that when I was having the details of one, it was, I was remembering the details of the, the, the television show I was watching and, you know, just taking them as fragments. And then mm-hmm. also it might be like, uh, you know, 
again, not not wanting to, something to be too boring or whatever. Yeah, you don't want to get in the thing of, of just complaining about, oh, I had to work on Pokemon again or right, whatever. Right, right. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, and that, that would be of no value. But people would probably relate to it a great deal. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. in terms of writing, what I was curious is, um, uh, do you rewrite a lot? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, that, in the case of ticket stuff, though, not really. I mean, I had Whiteout. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were things where I would do it there, you know, in, in the booth where, I, you know, I wouldn't be doing it later. It wasn't like I penciled them and inked them later. It was all just done on yeah. the spot. Well, uh, well, it feels to me like it's been polished to an extreme. So did you rewrite oh, yeah. there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, I mean, after after Ticket Stub, I was going to the library after work and writing writing that. And sometimes I would, you know, take a take a comic book and read the comic book and free associate off just reading it mm. and, you know that kind of thing or i would be yeah i mean uh, that kind of thing that somebody who's neurotic does where they just read the same thing over and over again until it feels like it it doesn't have a a, a thorn in it or something you know right you you're alluding to this, this strange feeling when you repeat the same word until it becomes almost abstracted uh, that can be the problem of it. No, you want to mm-hmm. like you know you want to you want to just read it until until it doesn't feel wrong. I don't know how to put it any other oh, way. I see. You know? Oh, you, you yeah. mean in your rewriting process? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, just as you write something, and then a lot of times mm-hmm. you just cross it out and, and just rewrite the same sentence again, but right. try to try to get get it right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I understand. Um, yeah, and, and do do you hear the text when you do it? Uh, I mean, you know, you're kind of speaking it in, mm-hmm. but it's not like, I don't think, like if I ever had to do something where you're like, oh, read, we're going to read this comic aloud, I don't, I don't know if it well, would work. No, I don't, I don't understand why people do this. It sounds painful uh, it, from both <laughs> sides of the process. It, dep- it depends, you know. Somebody... I did it once and it was just irritating. Right. And, you know, I, I love shouting at people, that's why I teach. But for some reason, when the pictures, it seems a little redundant. I'm like, this is your job, dear reader, to voice all this stuff. But the reason why I'm asking is, well, I always assume that people read and they hear voices, which is what happens to me. But apparently not everyone does that. Sometimes, uh, I guess a lot of people just read stuff and, uh, you know, well, I know what happened now. So they don't really have that rhythmic uh, sound in their ears when they write or read. So I was curious how it is for you, just personally. Well, uh, <laughs> it's pretentious, but I, I I've been trying to read Finnegan's Wake, you know, oh, the okay. James Royce. Like it's it's kind of incomprehensible to me, and like I'm only halfway through it. And I've been reading it for like months, and like mm-hmm. I, I understand maybe two percent of it. But what I read is they say. When you read it, you have to hear it. When yeah, you read yeah, it, absolutely. right. So I'm I'm trying to do that, and I go read it over my cornflakes or whatever, and uh, <laughs> you know. Um, Does the rhythm help? Of your crunching? Here, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> like it, a metronome. I'm, no, I try to pick up where I where I left off the next day, and I can't remember. Like I I literally can't understand it that much that I I look at it and go, okay, I think that was where I left well, off. Well, I, like, I think that's the point, you know, and and the book doesn't end. The, it loops. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of like reading the like a dictionary or something. Right. Like it's just like you can't control it. You just like uh, you can't like you. It's it's like an enemy to trying to figure out what it means a lot of the time. And it's like, and that that can be pleasant and stuff. But mm-hmm. it's 
but uh, in terms of your question, though, that's something where you're supposed to read the words and actually hear them because mm -hmm. they're, all, they're puns that have to do with how the words sound when when you read them. But it's not a spoken word book exactly. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's not yeah. like someone's going to get up on stage and go, "Okay, you know, like you know." So. No, I certainly don't expect that. Uh, <laughs> but well, but Finnegan's Wake, you know, Beckett famously said that it's not about something; it is something. Yeah. Which I think is a really good way of describing it. But also, it, it seems to me there, well, maybe I'm making a huge generalization, but it seems like there are two uh, major forms in literature, at least in good literature. And one is fragmented, and the other is when it just doesn't end. You know, for the latter, it's stuff like well, Finnegan's Way, Proust, which. Um, or, a lot of readers have this experience of going through it and then reading it again because by the time you get to the end, you kind of want to start again. And then you don't really remember if you read this or not, and it becomes almost like a deja vu thing. Or like uh, Laszlo Krasniko, the, the Hungarian novelist, in one of the interviews he said that he doesn't think it's natural for people to speak or think in sentences. And his books are just this stream of words that usually don't even have paragraphs and you're supposed to you know forget about all your ablutions and needs and just read it to the end all 400 pages until you drop dead and then start over i think um, uh I think for me it, yeah i think for me it just kind of cheers me up because i think like this guy spent 17 years on this and he, <laughs> he, he is you know he, uh, he's losing his eyesight from syphilis and you know his, his daughter is an insane asylum well, it, it's not 100 like, syphilis we don't really know why okay, okay it, well, it, it's been implied a lot of times but it's not confirmed Oh, okay. Well, but so anyway, you know, 17 years. But probably. <laughs> right. And so. Uh, I certainly did indulge in a lot of. Right. And I, in terms of if you're somebody who's an artist and you, you, if you can look at a book, you say, oh, someone says 17 years in this and it's incomprehensible. You just kind of <laughs> can't help but admire that. But I couldn't recommend it. I mean, like, I, no. you know, it's not like you want to say, like, okay, you know, everyone, you know, it's like, no, I mean, but. Uh, yeah, uh, but, but also better, people better hated it. Box. Uh, you know, like oh, yeah. he, his admirers, he they pleaded with him to just write another Ulysses, and I think it takes a lot of determination to go against that, especially, especially when when you've attained a lot of fame. Right. Yeah. So you know, I did. Uh, but anyway, that's what I meant. Like uh, as something that that's a musical, and you can hear it when you read mm -hmm. it. But I don't know, like. I don't know that I necessarily when I write something, <laughs> getting mm -hmm. to the very as far away from Joyce as you can get, but uh, <laughs> but it's like uh, you know I don't hear I don't hear like musicality necessarily. Mm -hmm. I just hear like you know something sticks out as being wrong, you know, uh, right? And I, and I try to, to to make it so it's not like that. <laughs> no, no, that seems to me like the perfect way of writing. I think it, it's kind of. I don't, wouldn't say it's wrong, but I find it impossible to analyze a sentence and find what's wrong with it. To me, I just read it again and again, and I know my my gut instinct tells me when it's finished, when there's nothing else that bothers me. Um, okay, well, to go back to the, the format thing, everything that you've done so far has been fragmented. So is yeah. it practical or aesthetic or what? I think it's like the self-criticalness is so much so that everything is interrupted before it really, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think is it may be a quick way. But um, I mean, the next thing I'm trying to do is actually not in 
like I'm trying to make it an actual I'm trying to just do it straight like where it doesn't have the page breaks like that mm-hmm. so we'll see whether that's any different or not <laughs> so uh, right. w- would you like to say anything about the stuff you're working on now oh god probably not because okay. I, I mean it's just going to take me so long to do it like no know, absolutely uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to force it <laughs> okay but uh, we'll have to wait and see Oh, I hope I hope it works out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, what else can I ask about? Um, I'm I'm always uh, kind of fascinated by the separation you have in the way you draw in ticket stub, which I imagine is more or less your natural style, and this kind of um, assumed anonymity that you have in other work. That's a good way of putting it. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, what is your own relationship? That do you do you have fun drawing this? <laughs> You know, sometimes <laughs> I do have fun, but uh, everyone, you know, I don't know. People think there's some idea that you know you couldn't put to put together like you know put uh, construct something like that rather than just like draw it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's confusing. It's not to me. It's just something to do. I mean, I don't have like uh, with the drawing. I don't feel like I have like a a natural talent in the sense of like, like when I look at your drawings to me, it looks like, and I've seen like little things on the internet of you drawing it and it just, it comes straight through. Like, you know, I just feel like you could just do it and it's just there, you know? Well, it's partially an affectation, I think. Um, but because I, I didn't draw as a child or as a teenager and I started drawing when I was in my mid twenties. Um, oh, so really? like I never even thought about drawing. And um, my main rationale was that, uh, how the hell do I get people to read my words? And I said, well, if I draw some pictures, then that will kind of lure them in. Uh, so, that <laughs> Actually, so, you know, I just studied people who are good at drawing, like um, um, Blaine, you know, all the French cartoonists who have this really natural style, like yeah. uh, Bluch is one of the people that I, I really admire. Um, yeah, he's great. Yeah. And <laughs> you, you can tell that he loves drawing, and I don't at all. I kind of pretend <laughs> to love drawing, but I, I love writing. That's the only thing I enjoy in this process. But your drawings look like you enjoy drawing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, but nowadays I I'm sort of I, I'm I kind of have very little energy, so I maybe draw three or four hours a week at most, and. During these times, it does feel like fun. Um, but before that, when I tried to do this whole cartoonist saying, like, get up and start <laughs> doing stuff, you know, be an ink stud, uh, I just hated every second of my life. You know? Well, it's uh, good, to, good to do other stuff besides comics, that's for sure. But um, yeah. actually, I had a question. I was reading an interview with you, and I was wondering about this, because in, in Wally Gropius, like, the character is involved uh, with the petrochemical uh, sort of like <laughs> stuff. And I read that you had studied to be a petrochemical engineer. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah. I, I was an engineer at Caterpillar. So what does that mean exactly? Like, is that, is that like, uh, I don't even know, like, is it like formulas or something? Or like... uh, yeah, well, no, it was incredibly boring. Uh, I think it's really not worth talking about, but, you know, it's, oh. uh, it's kind of like a combination of physics and the uh, resistance of materials and, uh, someone would just order some turbines from us and they would go, well, how big is your side? What's the power? Whatever. You know, it's ah. just tons of calculations and then you would have to write like a 20-page extremely dull technical text. I so was I just have, wondering... Yeah, I was just wondering... 
Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, I have like a very love-hate relationship with this intense bureaucracy that's just mind-numbing. Yeah, and, you know, in Russia, that's practically everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I was just wondering, because I was looking out, I was like, like well, the, there's that petrochemical angle on Wally. <laughs> I was like, is that why he likes the book? I was like, well, you know, like... Yeah, actually, I, I don't understand what the hell you're on about, but I love the bit that <laughs> the word petrochemical occurs three times. That's Right, it's... Like, <laughs> That's the saying that lured me in. Um, no, I, I I have a kind of... Every time I'm reminded of that, I feel a bit of a shiver, and I think... Oh, I didn't mean uh, to embarrass who the you. Hell, I... Who the hell did that? Was that me? Because uh, that seems like that just uh, happened in a previous life. Um, well, I didn't... hope you're able to avoid that, because like, you know, <laughs> one of the things I struggle with is like trying to trying to work and work on drawings and, uh, you know, outside of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. and if, if you can escape from having to, to do that, that's right. Well, so. but we talked a little bit about that. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about, um, but um, well, we, we sort of talked about this whole balance of life and art and whatnot. And um, for me, I'm, I'm a sellout and I just do uh, illustration. Um, which doesn't pay well, but, you know, it's some kind of practice and whatnot. Uh, a lot of people do animation, which that I really can't stand. I, I don't understand that's, how... They, that's what everyone's doing here in Los Angeles, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that just seems like torture. And you also, you do it for children who are... <laughs> right. I, I don't well, know that, what they want. You know, they're just like small adults with little hands and massive hands. Uh, it's all very confusing. But you choose not to do... Um, art for money and you just keep it very separated which i think is admirable oh i definitely have tried to do art for money i mean like i'm just not good at it i guess i don't know i mean but no i i, I don't know if you get i end up being kind of like a dilettante and then people don't like it on either side because they feel like you're getting away with something when you aren't like mm -hmm. you know uh if you're at work and then you say oh i'm doing this creative thing then people don't like it and People who do, you know, cartooning full time just think like, you know, they, you know, so uh, it's always been a struggle and it's nothing I can't, I still haven't resolved I you know, haven't mm -hmm. figured out how to, how to make my way in the world, I guess, and I'm too, so old that, I don't know, I mean, I should have figured it out by now, I guess. But. Uh, well, no, don't, don't think that way. Um... <laughs> You know, like Henri Rousseau started painting when he was in his 40s. And speaking of Robert Coover, he's writing his best work now in his 70s and maybe even 80s. Um, and it's well, just as fresh as what he wrote when he was a young man. But he was, he, at least he's a writer already or something. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, yeah. So. I think he makes most of his living through teaching. Yeah, so how I is mean, it? Is teaching working out good for you at all? or? Um, yeah, I guess. Because <laughs> that's also one of the things a lot of cartoonists can do, too, as well as, you know, yeah. like animation, teaching, <laughs> I don't know. Like... Well, I, I'm, I'm really heavy on theory, and uh, I love talking about art and kind of dissecting everything. So it, it's a natural place for me to be. Uh, and also I like uh, making people read stuff that they would never read you know, on their own. So I feel like, uh, you know, and I had terrible, terrible education myself. So it's almost like taking revenge on all these uh, horrible, hateful Russian teachers who would uh, kind of humiliate people in public. And I want to be uh, like the kind of teacher that inspires people and makes them happy. So it's kind of re revenge on my past life. I bet you're good at it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the motivation is more emotional than... Um, because money is pff, like a tip. 
<laughs> right. Well, I hear it's also really tough in San Francisco. Oh too, God! Like, uh, don't don't, yeah. don't get me started on that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, I just watched the uh, the adaptation of JJ Ballard's High Rise. Uh, oh, okay. Watching it in this city was particularly harrowing. <laughs> Because one one thing the movie director and uh, well he added a few things that weren't in the book but in the end there's a child kind of blow in a bubble, and then the bubble rises in the air and pops, and that's kind of the metaphor that's been jumping around for as long as I've been living here that all this tech bubble will burst and everything will be nice again, and well I've been waiting for a while <laughs> and everything's just getting worse and worse. Yeah, I have some friends up there who are trying to figure out what to do because of all that. But yeah, um... yeah, I'm I'm here because I have this uh, teaching job, which I I like because I care about my students a tiny tiny bit. Uh, so um, you know, I don't really have to be here, and also the weather is astonishingly good. Like when I go to LA, I I just can't understand yeah, how you live. Yeah, a lot of times down here it's like a being in an overexposed photo. A lot of times, <laughs> it's, it's, like, like, it's like Instagram. Um, yeah, yeah, like one filter or something. No, no it's like, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, my skin type is not good for, I feel like I'm, yeah, being mm-hmm. <laughs> But are, are you, because to me, I'm a huge walker. I don't even know if that's a word. I don't want to use the word flaneur because it sounds a little too grandiose what I do with just walking around. But um, I do feel like that has a, a huge impact on the way that, um the rhythm of the words and also the pictures. Um, and in your work, you have people walking in a very kind of peculiar <laughs> manner, like they have a lot of intention in every step. Uh, is that, uh, do, you, do you walk or do you drive? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, I mean, here it's both, I guess, but uh, try not to drive too much. Uh, that's actually something I see a lot in your comics is like, so well, yeah. <laughs> you have walking in like a lot of your, like, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, Innocence, Lost and Founders is like a lot of walking in there, and yeah, no one drives. The, no, that's some of the best parts of it to me. Like I, I love that. Like you, you know, just like not even with the words and stuff, just the people walking and the stuff is some of the, the beautiful stuff in there. But uh, in terms of myself, like I, I do enjoy walking. And tra- <laughs> I mean, a lot of the a lot of the poses that I have, like when I ha- have characters, sometimes that's like references to the things in actual comic books and then sometimes mm-hmm. I look up look up you know photographs and sometimes you know I just imagine it but I mean mm-hmm. uh in terms of there aren't a lot of pictures that I found of Hitchcock walking there's like a side view of him oh that's uh, fantastic that I have of him walking and you know uh so many you'd think like the way the character is drawn that it wouldn't that there wouldn't be photo reference for it but mm-hmm. a, a lot of that's a lot of the pictures of him in there are like I would be actually looking at the wrinkles in his clothes and trying to draw them in this cartoony way, which is probably not the most spontaneous way to do it, of course. But well, um, well, I think it's really fascinating that you do it this way because people tend to use reference in a in a really bland way. They just would copy it or they would study it and then make a convincing drawing out of it. And uh, since your work is so heavily stylized, it seems like you're kind of interpreting it and. Um, whatever folds you have uh, and there are actually now that i flip through it a lot of attention to folds in his uh, black coat yeah i mean one of the challenges in this one was like there had to be caricatures of real people and you're mm-hmm. kind of like kind of working in a semi you know little lulu style where everyone there's only two noses to choose from pretty much it was like a pointed nose and then like a round right. nose and like you know having to 
having to find pictures of like you know Donald Segretti. He's this like political figure, or whatever, and mm-hmm. having to make a caricature of him for this one little you know panel where he appears in a TV monitor and stuff like this. Like that was sort of fun and sort of not, but <laughs> um, you know that's. <laughs> but I do try to like if. I do try to have like a little bit of research in some of the things that I do, you know, but I, I wish I could, you know, I think a lot of it is not, is, is a lack of confidence as much as anything though. Cause sometimes you just like, I really don't know what to do. Well, there's, you know, there's a million pictures of Alfred Hitchcock. There's, there's the a thousand frames of Hitchcock website that has all of his movies and the, the actual frames from them and stuff. And that helped mm-hmm. me if I started to feel down, like, well, I can just look at that, you know, so. Right. Well, you know, as cartoonists, we're not contractually allowed to have any confidence. <laughs> but I, I must tell you that. It's a bit that, of both, right? Right. Your Truffaut is absolutely fantastic. And I've been looking at just the way you draw him, like this little uh, lines you have uh, between the eyebrows that really suggest that... Um, Rather peculiar skull shape than he has. He uh, looks like a he looks like a guitar pick. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good similar. Did um, you? Because you had to draw him too. Like, did oh, you? Oh, I did, did a, you, I did a terrible job. He looks nothing like him. And, did you uh, look? Did you look at pictures to draw him at all? Um, very. I'm terrible at drawing from life, and I hate it, and I don't do it. So uh-huh. anytime someone makes me draw from life, I just. Uh, want to you know that's the thing i did one good portrait in my entire career and everyone loved it and they started commissioning me more portraits and all of them were terrible and they had you know there were something for new york i redid eight times and then they commissioned someone else to do it which was extremely humiliating you know like your eight attempts are not as good um, because it didn't look like the person or something? They were just, yeah, they were stylized. You know, I, I'm much more into abstraction than realism. And I don't really know why anyone would ask me to do a portrait. But for some reason, go figure. Anyway, but in the Truffaut strip, you have this line, Leave me alone, I am a sea of alone. Um, right. Uh, where is that from? Um, there's a there's a book that's like kind of like the last days of Alfred Hitchcock where it's like this guy who was working on a screenplay with him and mm-hmm. it has all these anecdotes of him like pretty close to the very end of his life and he was he was in a lot of pain mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, he, he had a pacemaker and he was having problems with his knees and all, all kinds of stuff or whatever mm-hmm. and I kind of grafted that onto the the idea of Francois Truffaut visiting him at Universal Studios which I know he, he did but um, I kind of like figured those kind of same things would happen, you know, if if this other person had, visit, had been visiting with him or whatever. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's that's a line of dialogue that I that he said. So, yeah, but, yeah. Well, uh, it looked to me like something that you have picked from something because uh, it was so peculiar. <laughs> so um, I kind of assumed it's from something and it's not your own. Um, but I think you used it really effectively, especially because it's, um, I believe, the only part of this trip where the, the text size changes dramatically. So you really have this oddal shift going on, and it becomes a little more poignant than everything else that preceded it, which is more jokey. Right. Well, somebody's shouting a lot of times. You want to... Yeah. Some, <laughs> some, of that's, some of that's references to old comic books, you know, and then some of it's, yeah, I mean... Right. Well, you don't have it before, and then the first time you see it, it's kind of a little startling. And then you have this closing panel of Truffaut shrugging, uh, which also is very opposite, I think. 
Right. How do you end the thing? I don't know. <laughs> shrug. <laughs> I know. I mean, well, uh, like the shrug is just so apt for uh, this whole comic book. You know, it's it's a great <laughs> closing note. I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the other thing about this the screaming thing, how I uh, see it alone, and then the other thing is really tiny underneath it. That's something that's mm -hmm. in, Dick, in the comic strip Dick Tracy a lot. Sometimes they'll have somebody say something real loud, and then they're just being this little tiny thing underneath it. I think I got it from there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Yeah, uh, and also, um, again, in that treatment of material, you have in Volagropis a lot of bits where the medium seems to break itself. Um, like you would have swapped lines of dialogues, you know, like I'm, you're not the boss of me, but oh, it's right. sad, but, uh, the balloons kind of lose their place. Right. Yeah. That was intentional. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was very clever. Uh, so I think it's time to end this. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, plugs and things, uh, you can buy Sir Alfred number three. Um, don't forget the other ones. Uh, from Fantagraphics or from good comic shops? Uh, also, uh, I assume uh, they're not everywhere. It's also spit in spit in half that John Porcelino's uh, he has mm -hmm. a website. He's selling it. Yep. And uh, yeah, only a few of the comic shops, I think. I've heard of a few that have it, but I, I don't really. I'm not sure exactly where it is. <laughs> yeah. So, mm -hmm. listener, if you run a comic shop, why don't you get some and tell your uh, audience to buy it? <laughs> This is an order. Uh, then you can get Ticket Stop from Yam Books, a very small imprint from Rina um, that should be supported. And Volley Groppy is, is, of course, from Fantagraphics. Well, should I plug my own things? Is that Yeah, go oh, ahead. Yeah, that's a fine. good idea. Fine, what the hell? Uh, yeah. For the two people that are still listening, uh, past the endurance test. Uh, so, well, I have my first book is from No Brow, but you shouldn't probably buy it because it's not very well printed. Um, actually, why did I it say isn't? that? Maybe Robin can edit it out. Uh, I think it's wait. well printed. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that was a joke because I know that he never edits anything. Uh, it's it's oh. printed much darker than it should be. Uh, there is a French uh, collection of all my work that's coming out in August. So if you speak French and wait for that, and it will be printed the way it was intended to be printed. Um, oh, okay. And finally, I can uh, die in peace. Uh, with, you know, when I first saw that book, I was just howling with rage. Uh, but yeah, uh, like what you said is true. People don't really care about it. It looks nice and that's it. But for me, like you, you talked about the band in Wallacropius, you know, the sort of thing that only the artist himself knows or herself. The colors in it are dark, but I think it works. So I, I don't. It, it sort of works. Anyway, uh, moving on, I also have. Uh, like a completely digital book, well, drawn digital forum, Kush called, uh, what's it called? And the end of the the end of a fence. Um, you will notice that every single book I do has a pun in the title. That's how I roll. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I have a, a new one that should come out from Uncivilized Books very soon. Uh, it's called Jacob Bladders and the and what am I saying? Jacob Bladders and the State of the Art, and that one is drawn entirely with my finger and uh, occasionally a nib, uh, and it's all kind of smudgy and very William Blakey and dark. And uh, that one is probably my favorite, and I hope it will be the cheapest one. Anyway, <laughs> uh, wow. and I'm I'm not doing any festival appearances because I hate meeting my audience and I only like them at a distance and hypothetically. <laughs> but I will probably do a couple of San Francisco events where no one lives anymore because it's too expensive. 
Okay. And on that note, our conversation shall end. Uh, let me drop yeah, something. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Bye. That's like, that's like the book closing or something. Like that. Yeah. <laughs>